How do you prepare to be a geopolitical analyst? What should I read? At a certain point, it doesn't matter what you read. And you have to have a personality that has enough hubris to say that you can imagine the plausible future, but then enough humility to be confronted with alternate facts. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast about geopolitics from RAIN, Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. I'm Roger Baker. I'm excited about the launch of RAIN's new Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics, a center focused in large part on methodology, education, and training. Geopolitics is a word that's tossed around today. Often, uh, it seems with little real meaning, uh, and that appears to go doubly for the concept of geopolitical risk. The field of geopolitical risk analysis, or risk management, is exploding amid global corporate interest. But there seems to be little consensus on just what the field entails, how one becomes a practitioner, or how to most effectively translate geopolitical intelligence analysis into actionable insights for businesses. Today, to explore some of these issues, I'm joined by Jacob Shapiro, a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, and if I might add, a former coworker. Jacob, it's great, great to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. Coworker, but also was uh, was under your tutelage for a long time. So it's uh, it's it's nice to be with you. Well, don't blame me for that. Um, let's. Uh, I, I think to start off, uh, let's go with that that big outstanding question. Um, what is geopolitics from your perspective, and and maybe also from your experience? Uh, how do other people seem to interpret it, and how does that affect the way in which you know you and I work in this field? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your answer to this too. But for me, I, I've wrestled with it for years now. And I even went through a period where I was trying to say that I didn't do any geopolitics because I, I was so afraid of the word. And I, I've come to terms with it. And for me, it really is, um, it's a methodology and an approach for trying to understand the world. And it can't be your only methodology and approach. I think geopolitics goes off the rails when people say that it is determinative or when you treat it like it's the only thing that matters. But for me, it's just one in a number of different tools that you need in your toolkit to try and understand what's happening in the world. It privileges things that are more structural in nature, things that don't change that much over time. Um, but for me, geopolitics really sings when you can put it in conversation with an economics approach and in conversation with a political approach. Or And then when, when all those things start talking together, you can find the areas where they agree or disagree, and then you can really get to what the whole point is, which is generating insight that helps companies or investors or readers to sound better at their dinner parties. So for me, that's all it really is. It's a, it's a discipline and a practice for how to start thinking about the world. In some ways, it's, it's about narrowing down the, the, the noise of everything that's happening and then giving you um, enough puzzle pieces to work with that you can actually work with it rather than it being so unwieldy. I think it's critical what you say that, that it's a methodology. Uh, too often we hear geopolitics is a thing. Um, you know, the, the, the geopolitics affected China today or, or things of that sort. And I think from my perspective as well, this is a, this is a way of approaching and understanding the world. At, at its simplest form, I like to explain it as understanding the intersection of organized people and place over time. And what differentiates, I would argue, geopolitics from just political geography is that it not only looks at the past and the present, it also attempts uh, an element of predictiveness toward the future. Um, and the second piece of it, you know, I, I, I 
build off of um, more off of a, a British and, and maybe early American uh, geopolitical tradition. But the, that other piece of it to me is that it's a synthetic field. It's a place that takes lots of different specializations, deep focus on economics and on military dynamics and on social and societal elements and on technology and history and politics. And it tries to um, weave them together into a single tapestry to bring greater understanding rather than necessarily always greater detail. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I always steal something that you taught me very early on, which I don't know if, I don't know if you remember this or if you still do this, but you at one point when I was a young you know, analyst sort of fresh out of college and I thought everything was black and white. And if I, if there was a mountain here and there was a river here, boom, I had a geopolitical insight. And I remember very clearly one day you telling me that it was more like making pottery and that, you know, there was a certain discipline behind making pot. You have to know how to throw the wheel. You have to set the kiln at the right temperature. You have to do all these other things. And then at the end of it, you create the piece of pottery. So in a sense, like geopolitics, what we're talking about here, it's actually an incredibly creative discipline. It is not about sort of very simple equations that are a plus b equals c if it were you and i would be out of a job it's really about understanding all these different parts of the human tapestry and then creating which in our case is that piece of insight out of it that thing that is actually valuable and actually and allows you to do things that's actionable in a way that allows you to either um, hedge your risk or take advantage of opportunities well let's let's jump to that and and tease that concept out a little bit more as you talk about making it actionable right I mean, the easy thing in, in geopolitical analysis is to tell a good story. Um, and, and telling a good story and an engaging story has an element of value, but often I would argue that's the infotainment element. It, it, it gets people thinking, but it doesn't take them that next step. And, and obviously in your career, mine as well, but I know in your career, you've engaged in all different applications of this type of analytic work where uh, for broad-based subscription type publications, for specific uh, types of, of multinational companies or small localized companies, or more recently for financial services. How do you see the process the same and how do you see the process different when you're trying to take it that last step to applicability? I know we're only supposed to talk for 20 minutes, but I have no idea how we're gonna keep it to that, Roger, because I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, I actually think the story making component is really important because there's a certain level of communication as an analyst, too. And this isn't just geopolitics. If you cannot communicate your ideas, they're worthless because then nobody's going to understand them. And it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, or how great your methodology is. So there is an element where you have to learn how to tell the story. A big thing that happened for me when I went from, you know, I started, you know, just working for consumer publication oriented things. So there, if I'm writing an article, I get 1,200 words. I'm lucky if the reader gets through the end of it. I really do have to tell a story, and I have to paint with broad strokes, and I have to just accept that you know I've only got a couple minutes to try and communicate something really fast, and I'm not going to be able to communicate everything. Transitioning to working with companies or with investors, it was sort of the same, but I would say the big difference is that you can't just tell one story. You have to tell a full spectrum of stories that represent what is possible. So it's not good enough when I'm working with um, you know, a corporate client, for example, that I tell them, well, this is the story and it's the most likely thing that's going to happen. I have to tell them three different stories and all of them have to be 
just as um, articulate and charismatic as the other one. And then I have to tell them this one is a little more likely. This one is pie in the sky, but I can't dismiss it. So you should worry about it. And this one is lurking around. And here are the things that you would be looking for in the case of each story itself. Um, so for me, one of the ways that I really felt like I grew as an analyst was when I let go of this thing where I had to find the one story to convince my reader. And it was more about, you know what, it's really about describing all of the possible stories and then working together with my client, whoever they are to figure out what insight in there actually helps them. And it's going to be very different depending on the client. Yeah, and I, I would I would say we, we refer to it now as the plausible futures. The possible futures is too big. Um, and I try to narrow it down to the plausible. But I think that I went through a similar pattern as you from the, no, I need to tell you what will be, to recognizing the value in telling uh, what what are the three or four or five most likely paths. Um, and then also, though, using that to tease out and really explain why are those the paths, right? To, to identify what are the drivers of each what are the the assumptions that I am making from historical analogy, from uh, economic analysis, from political research? Uh, what are those assumptions, and and how confident am I in each of those sub assumptions? And then how do those weave together? Do I have a internally cohesive, for lack of a better word, narrative about the future? And what happens if one of those assumptions turns out to be wrong? Um, and that's where, for me, then I start breaking into those alternate scenarios. For some of uh, the, the, the customers that I've engaged with, that scenario process in and of itself is probably the most significant part rather than the outcome of the process. Because looking at applicability, it then gets them to think about what would it mean for my company, my organization, my investments, if scenario A, scenario B, scenario C occurred? What are my um, risk mitigation or opportunity strategies? And then the final piece, which is often the most complicated, what are the indicators that I'm going to start laying out that helps me to see before the crisis breaks what's happening? Yeah. And this also goes back to something you said at the beginning about people, um, you know, asking, and I get this question all the time too, how do you prepare to be a geopolitical analyst? What should I read? What, what are the things that, that I must know in order to get into this field? And it's weird. I think you and I both have this personality type to where at a certain point, it doesn't matter what you read. You have to have a certain type of personality and you have to have a personality that has enough hubris to say that you can imagine the plausible future, but then enough humility to be confronted with alternate facts and say, oh, well, apparently that thing that I was just so strongly sure of, I'm going to have to change my mind. Um, a good example of this is when I first started working um, with Cognitive Investments before I joined them as a partner and I was just kind of, uh, we were on a contract basis. Um, they were asking me what I thought about Turkey from a macro context. And I wanted to impress them because it was one of my first real um, projects for them. So I had this beautiful, this beautiful tapestry to steal your words of here's, here's what Erdogan's doing and here's the geopolitics of Turkey and here's the history and here's the long-term fundamentals and here's why you should never invest in Turkey and you should short the Turkish Lira right now. And uh, I was really proud of the piece and they all read it and they said, this was so great, Jacob. 
um, we've decided based on your narrative that we're actually going to go long Turkey. We, we like that there's something in here. We think that people are too negative on Turkey and you've showed us kind of the path forward. So thanks for that. And I stopped in my tracks because I was thinking I was arguing this brilliant thing the wrong way. But what I had actually done was I had given them an insight and they were able to use it for themselves in their own context and they made good money off the investment. So it's that there's a certain degree of humility that has to go alongside the hubris to do the things that we're, we're talking about here. And in some ways, I've always found that's the hardest part of, of training analysts. It's not about go read McKinder. Anybody can go read McKinder. It's about can you actually live within the constraints of geopolitics? And it, can you live within the constraints of this discipline and this practice? Right. And when we, when we talk about those, those constraints, you know, sometimes people will overdo them, sometimes underdo them. But I think you know, what, one of the important things on geopolitics to me is that it, it emphasizes, you know, I, I have, we've, we've developed the seven pillars of geopolitics, but if I were to narrow it down to, to the three most important fundamental components, one is place, right? Place can, uh, has always influenced and continues to influence uh, toward the future. And place, the value of place can be altered by changes in technology, changes in demographics and things of that sort, but place matters, place is significant. Um, and I think that's something people forgot at the end of the Cold War and are suddenly remembering over the last you know, dozen years that, oh yeah, place matters. Um, the, the second, of course, is organized people rather than individuals. And often geopolitics is, is accused of ignoring the individual. And at some level on the broad sense, it downplays the role of any single individual. But what it really does emphasize is that there are groups of people who have uh, emerged or evolved in certain geographic realities that have shaped different ways and different perceptions of how to interact with space and with other peoples. And it's why, for example, we don't have a single global uh, liberal economic uh, philosophy that everyone in the world agrees with because they all come from different geographies, different places, different backgrounds, different historical tradition. And then that third piece, though, is time. Um, you can't look at anything only in the present. You have to understand that everything exists as part of a flow, as part of a continuum. What came before, what's going to go after, and how do we look at the interaction between those? When you take those three and tie them together, it both gives you a more complex uh, understanding, but also in some ways you can step back and then have a very simplified narrative, which very frequently in working with corporations, it's not give me the 40-page report, it's give me the 40-word answer. Yeah, although I wonder... I would throw a question back at you, which is how has the role of the individual evolved in your own thinking? Because for me, most of the time, the individual still doesn't matter. The individual leader I'm talking about here, but sometimes the decision of an individual is the whole ball game. So, I mean, if we're dealing with this Russia Ukraine war, for instance, and I, I got this call wrong, I, I, I said to at CI that it was a 70% chance that Russia was not going to invade Ukraine. And I thought that because when you look at just the straight geopolitics of what Russia's doing in Ukraine, it's honestly madness. If I was advising sort of the Russian government, I would tell them here are all the reasons that this is a bad idea and you shouldn't do this. But it, it really didn't it didn't matter at that point. What really mattered was that you had a Russian president who was seeing the world very differently and he had the power to do something else. And he is 
really changed, I think, the future of Russia based on his interpretation of the world. Now, he is, of course, the outgrowth of place and of time and of all these things that you're talking about. And in some sense, he's a representation of all the things that we're talking about. But I do think we get to these moments in time where the individual does really matter. And geopolitics, in some ways, is wise enough to say... It doesn't have the toolkit to understand what that person is doing. You better go get some intelligence or you better try and, and hedge your bets if you don't know exactly what that person is thinking. Because in the short term, if that's your time horizon, it really can mess you up. Um, do you feel that way too? Or, or, or do you still kind of think that the individual is not important and that I'm giving too much, too much agency to them? Uh, a lot of it to me depends upon the time frame. The narrower the time frame, the less predictive geopolitics as a discipline is. The longer the time frame, the more valuable it is. Then you get to too long of time frames and then it's just fun. Um, but, but, but it, you know, and, and that's where, again, blending, as you noted at the beginning, geopolitical analysis in and of itself is one piece of, of a full toolbox of analytic uh, capabilities and capacities. You know, this is where, um, you know, we used to teach, um, what did we call it? Uh, empathetic analysis. So understanding the individual uh, based on what's their background, based on what was the, the context within which they emerged uh, in their career or even before their career. How did that shape their view? And then use that to say, now what's the geopolitical context right now? Now let me look at it from the empathetic perspective of that individual and see what's likely to happen. Now, I made the exact same mistake on, on Russia-Ukraine, um, and, and I was absolutely right in why I made the mistake, because everything that's happening to the Russians now is a very clear example of why they should have carried out a different path to achieve the same goal. Um, and I thought that they were wise enough to see that. And when you look back, one of the things that I noted um, is that I think they actually believed the same thing that Western intelligence was saying, which is the Ukrainians will fold in three days or eight days or something like that. And the Russians then violated their own doctrine, failed to, uh, to protect their own supply columns, never took air superiority, and then wondered why their, their air transports got shot out of the sky when they tried to surround Kiev. Um, you know, and had they had they kept forces in Belarus to to threaten the back of Kiev and then only moved in the east, they also probably wouldn't have incurred the same amount of, of ire and action from the Europeans. So so all of the reasoning why I thought the Russians wouldn't move um, ultimately turned out to be accurate reasonings and now has caused the problems for the Russians. And that's one of the things as you talk about uh, hubris versus humility that as geopoliticians we really have to remember because as much as we try to erase the individual as we're talking now individuals and individual leaders do matter um, and they have the, they're, they're constrained by circumstance and by structure but they still have significant influence nobody can say that there was no influence on the the United States global position by the election of Obama or Trump, but both of them had a very impactful aspect on that. But if you step far back, you can see broad cycles that they fit inside as well. Yeah. And I mean, just, I mean, to your point there, and whether it's Russia, Ukraine, or really any war, 
it doesn't matter if like geopolitically you get all of the the things exactly right because you also have to add that piece that you're talking about which is you also have to understand how that actor is is viewing the situation so if you go back to any war everybody thinks or anybody who starts a war thinks that they have a chance of winning the war and there's only going to be one victor at the end so whether it's going back to the Korean War, World Wars One and Two. If you are a geopolitical analyst, the difference between the ones that get things right and the ones who are just kind of confused anytime something happens is when you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. And for me, in, in the Russia analysis, um, it was a combination of two things. It was a failure of imagination. I did not. I thought I was putting myself in the position of a decision maker in Moscow, um, and I obviously wasn't. I, I was not able to empathize with the position that Putin felt he was in and felt that Russian national security was in. But the art, the other part of this was, I um, I let my guard down when I was talking to Russian geopolitical analysts. I've been to Moscow two or three times now. They've had me go speak there. I sit there and I. I mean, their food is not great, but whatever, I ate it and, <laughs> and it was fine. But none of none of those analysts that I keep in touch with and that I have on my podcast sometimes, they all didn't think it was going to happen either. And I let myself listen to them and be comforted by the fact that I was agreeing with these people who should have more access to that thing rather than being out there and being lonely and saying, no, this is a real threat. So in that sense, it was a, a nice lesson in humility from that perspective. I took too many things for granted. And I think that's another um, sort of, useful thing to keep in mind from from the concept of geopolitical analysis it's let the let the events and the space speak for itself rather than be drawn into groupthink and consensus now that's also a, a warning for any type of of international analysis or, or analysis right these are these are very standard um, tools and warnings out of intelligence analysis but in um, you know it, it's geopolitics as a discipline also gives me the ability to erase what I think I know, relook at the space, relook at the context, relook at the change in the in the the the, the temporal context, the technological context, um, social context, and then rebuild a new vision or a new view of that space. And then I can relook at the actors and what they're doing, how they're going to be acting, and and intentionally use that discipline to come back and force me to to constantly recheck my assumptions because I've had too many times where I've allowed an assumption to ossify and not paid attention to changing circumstances around it and then been dead wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that because. And this kind of goes, I call this the Hemingway principle because there's a, there's a Hemingway quote that I love. And the, the part that everybody knows is that the dignity, of it, the dignity of an iceberg is that, I forget, two-thirds of it moves underneath the water. But the other thing that he says in that, in that quote is that he's talking about being a writer, not an analyst, but I think it applies both ways. He talks about how the only, the only thing that a writer really does is that he or she learns things in a quicker ratio of time than other people and then is able to c communicate something about that experience back to people. And in some sense, that's the hardest part of being an analyst because, I mean, you were talking about time. I would love to, you know, be able to be a PhD student in every single topic that a client has tasked me with and spend five years becoming the expert on Indonesian apparel supply chains to throw out an, a recent example from my life. But the client doesn't have five years and I don't have five years. We have one month and then they have to make some decisions. So in some, some part of this is learning things really, really fast and then being able to adapt on the fly. And if we're getting back to sort of the application of geopolitics, this Russia example we're talking about is actually 
a great example. So I told you that I gave it a 70% chance that Russia was not going to invade. I was doing that because we were, we took a small position um, in Russian equities before the war, in part because I was telling my colleagues at CI, there's no way they're going to do this. This would be a disaster. Putin is smart, is smarter than this. And I got that dead wrong. But in some ways, the thing I was most proud about was that just because I had that analysis, I didn't stop doing the work. I still every day was reading the same newspapers and going through all the same information. And when it became clear that I was wrong, we got out. I called a meeting with them and I was like, guys, I'm wrong. We need to get out of this position right now. And they were like, oh, no, why don't we keep it on for a couple of days? Why don't we why don't we see where it goes? And I was like, no, guys, you don't understand. The model's broken. Like we can get back into it in a couple of days if once I rebuild the model. But I'm telling you right now, it doesn't work. And we got out and a couple of days later, you couldn't have gotten out even if you tried because Russia froze um, all the stock markets and you still, you, could, you would still be holding that bag if you didn't get out at that time. So I'm not happy that I didn't get the Russia thing right, but that's a really good example of how to use geopolitics in practice. You have to burnish the, the idea, the scenario, the forecast, but then you better be trying to punch as many holes into that forecast as possible so that if you are wrong, you're the first one that raises your hand and says, hey, guys, this is wrong. We need to do some risk mitigation right now. Right. I think that that discipline of um, searching for your own errors rather than searching for what proves you right, um, it's not unique to geopolitics, but it becomes invaluable within within the field, within the concept of applied geopolitics, where you're using this not just to come up with grand theories about the past, but you're really using it to try to understand not only risk in the future, but the more complicated concept of opportunity. Yeah, which is really the holy grail. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a client meeting and, you know, they just want a little widget that says, oh, this is flashing red. There's a lot of risk. Um, I almost hate the word risk more than I hate the word geopolitics because risk really doesn't mean anything. Um, to have a risk, you have to have, it has to be a risk to something. So as sort of an example, I was doing two different projects around the same time. One was for a financial services company. One was for um, a tech manufacturing company. Um, and they were both curious about what was going on um, with energy prices in India and in China. And what, for one of them, the energy brownouts that ended up happening because of a shortage of coal and, and sort of other hydrocarbons, that was bad. That meant factories were going to get shut down. But for the financial services company, they wanted to go long those commodities. So the risk to them would have been if China or India had figured out how to source other energy. So risk by itself geopolitical risk by itself, that doesn't mean anything. You have to have a position or something that you're trying to do and then say, okay, here are the risks to that position. And then here are the things that would tell you that this is a good position to have. And in that particular case, it was the same information. It was the same data. It was the same approach. But because of the two different end goals of the client, the risks were completely opposite of each other. It was almost like putting a, an analysis in the mirror and I just gave them both, you know, the opposite sides of the mirror. So um, yeah, it, there's part of that too in, in trying to understand what risk is and how to understand the difference between just being passive and watching versus actually having to make decisions in marketplaces. Well, that gets us at a point where we could really get drilling in, but we're also at time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll just have to come come on to, to my show and we can pick up the conversation uh, from there, hopefully, yeah? I, I, I'd be thrilled to, and, and let's keep this conversation going. I, I really want to thank you, Jacob, uh, for being here, having this discussion with me. I know we barely scratched the surface, um, but definitely a conversation to keep going. Sounds good. 
Well, we've been joined today by Jacob Shapiro, the Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Cognitive Investments. Jacob, great talking with you today. Thanks, Roger. Anytime. If you would like to learn more about the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, visit rainnetwork.com backslash stratcenter. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.